Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness, and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode. So we went through, so far, the 10 stages of NDEs. Oh, One of the questions, one of the great questions that I had going through the 10 stages of NDEs was about the arguments and counter-arguments that would be supporting the authenticity of the experience. So one of the questions that remains, and perhaps a question that can never be fully answered, is whether or not the people who report near-death experiences are in fact genuine. There's no way to truly answer that question. We've spoken about this before, but I want to just make sure that we remember this. What I collected is we figure if a lot of different people say the same thing, they can't all be lying. But what is certain is that there is a real possibility for an authentic experience. In every other, in every other facet of life, there are several available avenues for interpretation. So some people adamantly view the near-death vision as proof for an afterlife. Others are are more skeptical. They're, They're hesitant to draw the same conclusions. And often, I would say these more skeptical people or the more skeptical viewpoint is espoused by those who would also agree that the absence of evidence is not necessarily conclusive evidence of absence. So the the primary issue they take with this idea or this proposition of NDEs is whether or not they're scientifically grounded. So I think that in order to present a deep dive or a a comprehensive overview of this subject of near-death experiences, we have to give voice to both opinions. We have to give voice to the arguments and the counter-arguments, the supports and the refutations. It's not fair. We can't consider ourselves uh, objective if we don't give all the different sides. So a basic contention for the skeptical mind is that the description given for a near-death experience is fundamentally 
the same description that's offered by those who are quote-unquote hallucinating. People who hallucinate due to an intake of narcotics or some kind of external stimuli may have a very similar experience to the experiences that we spoke about until now. So the argument is that the experience is purely a chemical reaction that causes these quote-unquote illusions and is therefore not a vision that arises from some sort of bodiless consciousness, but it's just an hallucination. And in a dying patient, it's the oxygen deprivation that gives rise to these fantastical imagery and not some spiritual out-of-body phenomenon. I think it's important to say this because, unfortunately, and I say this unfortunately, in our world, spirituality and, and religious experiences, but more spiritual experiences, have gotten a bad rap because so easily they can be kind of pushed aside and removed by someone saying, you're just hallucinating. Stop taking whatever you're taking. Or, I wish I had what you were on, is something I hear a lot. Oh, wow, you seem really happy. What are you taking? And so, because of external stimuli and external substances, we have almost, I would say, dampened the spiritual experience. And it's very easy on a scientific level to kind of just shoo it away and say, oh, this is uh, uh, more of your shenanigans. There are people who are more, let's say, psychologically oriented, and they may argue that the myriad of beautiful and, and delightful visions that appear in the mind are conjured up by the dying person themselves. And it's done as a self-protective mechanism to uphold and to push aside the overwhelming fear of death. In effect, it's the person themselves, they say, that produces the imagery of an afterlife so they can tame their absolute fear of extinction. So what I want to do is something that you probably wouldn't expect in a more spiritual environment, is I want to go through each of the 10 stages again, and I want to explore all the counter-arguments for each of the 10 stages of near-death experiences. I won't explore them in great detail as I did maybe the other, but just enough to be able to understand other perspectives so that you and my job as a teacher, and I and, and I say this humbly and, and, and also importantly, is to give you as much information as I can so you can make your own decision. So I presented one side, which was a unique new side, perhaps one that you haven't 
thought of before. And maybe this one will be more one that is more familiar to you because we live in a world full of skeptics. So stage one. When we spoke of the near-death experiences, we divided them into 10 progressive stages. Remember, they're not linear stages. We just gave them 10 stages in order to allow the process to happen. The first stage, if you remember, was the experience that someone would have of hearing themselves declared dead. Now, researchers speculate that even while people appear to be unconscious, information still registers in the brain to the extent that many people seem to recall what occurred around them even when they were at that time unconscious. Now, it's important to think about that. If anyone, heaven forbid, is ever in a situation where they are with a loved one who is in a coma or unconscious, remember that very often they can hear everything you're saying. So that could be a comforting message, but it could also be a warning of message that often I was sitting in a room not long ago with a family and the the person uh, was in hospice and they um, they were unconscious and the family was busy making funeral arrangements by the bed. And at first... When I came in, I interrupted the funeral arrangements. You know, They called the rabbi because the person was in hospice. And after I finished the prayers, I pulled him aside and I said, you know, according to our tradition, the person can hear everything you're saying. And so I understand that you want to be prepared and that the person is in a process, in a state that perhaps they're not going to be in the alive state soon. But it's so important to us that, number one, there's a certain dignity and not to talk about this in front of them because they can hear everything you're saying. And number two is we don't believe in quality of life. We believe in life. And so these moments of life, though to you it's saddening, To the person, they're still experiencing. They're still here in this world. They're not pronounced dead. They're here with us. And so therefore, we need to honor and and respect that life, that soul, that experience. So while this may be true, that the person... is there and is able to recall all the different steps and the things that happen while the person is in a coma. It doesn't explain the testimony, assuming assuming the testimony is trustworthy, that people who speak of knowing what was said and done in other rooms, for example, 
the story that I heard not long ago about a blind man who reported the accurate details of the room's formation and colors. In such cases, I would say that the physical reception of the brain is an unlikely resource of information. And the knowledge needs to be attributed to some other source, whatever that is. From a scientific perspective, I think it'll be difficult for us to be able to really understand what that source is. But these are anecdotal. We understand they're anecdotal. But at the same time of being anecdotal, it's important for us to know that they do exist. And this is a, a reality of a particular situation. Let's take a look at stage two and three. We spoke about a sense of peacefulness, a a sense of uh, tranquility, a sense of total serenity, in which, in the second stage, can be easily, easily explained away, rationally and and, and scientifically, without reverting to uh, the supernatural. The body, we have come to learn, produces natural painkillers. They're called endorphins, which are pumped into the bloodstream during a time of crisis. Endorphins are internally created, morphine-like chemicals. Among their effects are pain reduction and a feeling of euphoria. So the body protects itself from danger. And in moments of extreme pain, it's going to naturally produce those painkillers so that it will feel less and maybe even will feel no pain at all. Now, pain, let's talk about this for a moment. Pain, generally speaking, is not a bad thing. What is pain? It's the means by which the body informs the mind that danger is looming. It's forcing the person to respond accordingly and to find help. Too much pain, however, as when the body is in a state that it is, we'll we'll say without a better word that I can think of, dying, too much pain can cause an overload to the brain and it can be completely counterproductive. And it's for this reason the brain produces pleasant painkillers and gives the body um, a better chance to recover. These, what we'll call calming chemicals, are one way to explain when a dying person feels that serenity and peacefulness. And there are those who speculate that the near-death experience is due to the lack of oxygen in the brain, which would explain why the experience is similar to seizures of the temporal lobe. Now, others argue that it could be a result of the opposite. It can be a result of an overabundance of oxygen to the brain, which would explain why the experiencer may feel quite peaceful and may be more at ease. 
Yet these rational, you know, to rationalize this, I would say they're somewhat flawed because many people, as research has shown, who have encountered near-death experiences, they don't have less or more oxygen to their brain. So that would not make any sense with regards to that particular situation. Though there are, again, there are arguments that would say that that is the reality. I'll go into one more stage today because I think I'm going to have to divide this into two parts and I'll have to do the, the second part next week. Stage four. At some point, the dying person senses themselves separating from their body and viewing their body from above and being survival-based, people will conjure up or create an image and imagine anything possible that will help them survive. I love that about the human condition. The human condition is such that we will do anything to survive. Psychologically, I think there's ample reason why a person would want to feel themselves distancing from their injured body. So by becoming emotionally detached from the body, that's the body that's wounded, observing the body from above, we become more equipped to handle the situation, the extreme situation without panic. And it, it affords the individual the ability to, to call forth new potentially life-saving energy from within that may end up truly being able to save their life. As a matter of fact, any memory of ourselves is simply a recalling of what has occurred to us as seen from kind of a, a removed bird's eye view. A part of our consciousness is always somewhere in the background. It's always somewhere bearing witness to any event that we're experiencing, our subconscious. We remember ourselves doing something, but it's as if we're a separate entity. It's like we're a third person watching ourselves while doing the act. Wishful thinking, I would say, would be another argument against the authenticity of a near-death experience. The, the hypothesis of wishful thinking is that seeing a body from a detached location is simply a fantasy of sorts. A deaf, a blind, or a handicapped person, whether actually or imaginably, may visualize themselves inhabiting a flawless body. The same is true with people who are in an accident or, heaven forbid, severed a limb. Being knocked unconscious, 
they may observe their body ravaged, maybe lying on the ground, and simultaneously wish into existence an ethereal-like replica of themselves, which is perfect, which is whole. That, that would make sense. Um, an autoscopic vision, a, a self-seeing hallucination is another issue that needs to be discussed, I would say. An autoscopic hallucination is where people see a reflected image of themselves as an external entity. Something like this could occur when a person suffers, let's say, from a brain tumor or a stroke or uh, an extreme migraine headache or maybe uh, epilepsy. Or when a reflection of self is seen elsewhere. Where, which means like this, um, a psychological disorder of some sort. Now, this phenomenon has been recorded throughout the ages. Actually, Aristotle spoke of a person who would walk the streets of Athens and see himself in the crowd. Yet, I would say this autoscopic hallucination or the body vision in the near-death experience is a little different. There's a clear distinction between the two. In an autoscopic vision, the way it's described, the person sees the body alive, the person sees the body vibrant, and even perhaps talking back to them. In a near-death experience we see the lifeless, unresponsive body. We don't see the body alive and talking back. What's more, I would say, that in an autoscopic hallucination, the awareness comes from within, observing the self from our own eyes, as it were, perceiving a projected image of ourselves. On the, on the opposite, in a near-body experience, sorry, in a near-death experience, the center of awareness appears to be outside the body. The person sees the body lying there, as if from another location, a place unrelated to the body. Though I do think that it's important to talk of autoscopic hallucinations because they could very easily be seen and someone in the medical profession would say oh well if you know this is something that could very easily be justified so i thought it would be important to have that discussion so these are um the the the, the critical analysis elements of the first four stages of ndes any questions Put in the chat. Okay, let me look at this. Oh, thank you. Any other questions while I'm looking? 
Rabbi, when people take drugs, mushrooms, grass, cocaine, whatever it is, they don't trip the same way. I mean, we can be in the same room, take the same drug, and have completely different experiences. So, well, yeah, hallucination, fine. I, I can uh, I can relate to that, but for everybody to have the same hallucination? Are you tired of swiping right on every dating app out there and still getting nowhere? Are you convinced that you'll forever be alone, surrounded by nothing but uh, cats and empty takeout containers? <laughs> Hi, I'm Aliza Ben Shalom, the host of the new show, Jewish Matchmaking, which you can find on Netflix. And I'm the love rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael Bernath, and we're inviting you to join us for Matchmaker Matchmaker. Each week, we'll answer one of your pressing relationship questions, from how to get over your ex to how to deal with your partner's annoying habits. So if you're ready to laugh, uh, cry, or maybe even find love, then tune in to Matchmaker Matchmaker, and it's available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. I can say the same thing about near the I can say the same thing about near-death experiences as well. Um, Because not everyone has the same experience. Which means, and I've said this, that there, what I gave you is a compilation of a, of a lot of the same experiences people had, but not everyone has the same experience and not in the same order all the time. So, I, I think, I, again, you're right, and they're right also. So, and I think, and I think it's really, really important to know that. Julian, can you just um, ask the question in the chat? Because I, I wasn't, wasn't able to go through everything. So just put the actual question in the chat so I can, I can answer it. Any other questions while Julian's putting his question in the chat? Yeah, I think well, we had a, a musing um, here. Mom, did you want sure. to share um, there's a couple of things. The second one, I can't remember anymore because I just, I just forgot it, but I might remember. Um, so I'm wondering about the experience when um, a person, people, anyone might experience extreme emotional trauma, um, physical trauma, abuse more, that there is an experience of separating from your body and sort of watching it and not actually not being present at all. Disassociation. It's, and you know, I've, we call it, you know, in my world, dissociation, but I was wondering if that relates chemically, is that also something that is, that is relating to a chemical, um, reaction. yeah, it's reaction in the body. The, the the human's desire to survive at all costs is an amazing, amazing phenomenon. So yeah, someone who experiences some t- type of extreme trauma is going to have a similar experience. And that's why I think it's important to be able, part of the reason why I'm, I, I'm talking about this today is because I think it's important for us to differentiate between what is an NDE and what is an hallucination and what is 
um, uh, extreme trauma as a result of having, like you're saying, this kind of um, out of body experience. So, and and it, it's it's sometimes <clears throat> sorry, sometimes it's a fine line between the two, and it's not always easy to understand. And so I, I appreciate that you're bringing that up because that's another example that I didn't even think about, and I'm going to add it to my notes of of how you can very easily misassociate. I, I apologize if you hear a lot of noise in my background. Um, this weekend is my daughter's bat mitzvah, and our family is in from out of town, and so there's a lot of people in my house right now. Mazel tov. And every, everyone is invited. Uh, Mazel tov. Good, it's wonderful. We're, for those of you who aren't in Montreal, we're going to try to uh, put up a Zoom uh, this Zoom will be up uh, on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock here. Where, so you can uh, probably around 11 o'clock if you want to join us via Zoom from far away as part of the festivity. You're, you're welcome to join. So you'll hear a lot of noise in my background. Rabbi, I, I wanted yeah. to, I, I've said Mazal Tov and I'll be there on Saturday. So I, I, I won't yeah. continue on that note, but uh, I'll be happy, you know, if I, if I can sneak a peek again um you know maybe yeah. I, I can share with the friends no problem uh, on your permission um i've had uh, uh, a dissociation experience but not due to trauma i mean maybe thinking of it it was after childbirth maybe it was trauma but uh when when yarin was born and and he was uh put on my chest on my breast I, I spent 40 minutes floating, experiencing it from, from, the how, uh, from the outside. So maybe it can join your thing about hormones. and Yes, and, yes absolutely. Yeah. Look, I, I've never given birth, but I definitely have uh, lived through it vicariously six times. And so I could tell you it's, 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 it's an incredible euphoric experience from what I could see. So... Yes, that would be another great example. I was completely dissociated, experiencing it on, on a completely different spiritual level, still being connected to my body since I could feel my son on, on me. And, and I was observed, there, there was a godly feeling, even though I, we may not like me using that term, but there was some form of, of uh, heavenly or... Yes, there's higher... no reason not to use that term. It is a beautiful incredible in these moments you see it's it often and i'm happy you're saying this alexandra because often we look at these as negative experiences but these euphor these euphoric experiences happen also in positive moments in in, in i don't know extreme trauma it's it, it's the i mean you can't describe childbirth in any other way besides uh i mean yes there's a tremendous amount of pain but also there's a tremendous euphoria well, we have all the oxytocin helping us doing it. So otherwise, I, I guess we wouldn't be able to. But uh, it, it, it's funny because I've experienced it with the birth of Yarin, but I haven't experienced it with the birth of Naomi, yeah. which has a, which was a very different experience in itself. I, I, I'll give you an anecdote. While I was giving birth to Yarin, there was a, a lady in the room, in the birthing room next to me, um, yelling, to death. I mean, and, and while I was giving birth, I thought to myself, goodness, the worst has not come yet. And so, <laughs> you know, if this is what is it, it is, I'm not there yet. And and uh, I started praying for her in my own childbirth, 
I mean, in the birth of my own child, I started praying for the lady in the next room to have a safe delivery. And, and Yarin popped out um, within minutes. Uh, and, and I'm thinking, could it be my having an altruistic thought in, in a moment of need myself that helped me reaching that point of spirituality? Yes, absolutely. Oh, wow. Show you other examples in other situations of that type of altruism and how it plays into so many other um, uh, gifts that are given to us. We know when we give to others, it's much greater than giving to ourselves. All right. And I'm telling you, I was great. What a great story. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. And it came naturally. It wasn't uh, in the thought of having a better birth myself. Yeah, it was just. I heard her in such pain. I I just wanted her to be protected. It was wow. insane. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Wow. Cheryl. I love that story, Alessandro. Gives all of humanity hope a little bit. I want to go back to, are we in the sharing part? I don't even have my watch on. I hope we are. Uh, the ultra, oh my God, wherever you see a different life where you were talking about, someone was talking about drugs and, you know, that kind of feeling. <clears throat> and I'm thinking, so for those that are in pain, possibly the bed of pain that the, the person who is passing is on, I know they use this technique in therapy a lot of envisioning your life as whole and pain-free and whatever, not for people who are dying, but for people who have chronic illnesses. And I've heard you say, even Facebook before, if you don't like your thoughts, you can change them one thought at a time. So it's a mind thought thing. I know that's more conscious, whereas the person who is dying has this unconscious event of maybe a little me, a little person of themselves and what they used to be. I don't know that it's that much different of what therapists are trying to do today. I think they want you to feel like you used to feel. I can, I agree with you 100%. And it may not be unconscious to the person who's dying. It may be mm-hmm. just as conscious as the yeah. therapist is trying to explain and experience. Yes, that's a, a great anecdote. Yes. I'm adding that to my notes. Jill, please. I, I was wondering about hypnotherapy and particularly, you know, Dr. Brian Weiss, who's done so much around that. And it, to the point where, you know, he's written many books now about these past lives that people could drop in and he was convinced enough coming from a very, you know, straight medical background. And I just wonder about that experience, that similarity where people are very aware they're that they've had these other other experiences, these other lives, you know, and he's used them in a a positive way of, you know, trauma there affects trauma here. But I'm just wondering about all of this crossing over and how that, you know, I, I don't know that I've read anything about that compared to near-death experiences, but it feels like 
whatever part of us is being affected, that might be also a part in hypnotherapy. I'm going to try to see if I can finish writing what I had started uh, for next week, because there is a huge correlation between mm -hmm. what we're talking about and hypnotherapy. Okay. And, and you know, what's interesting also about hypnotherapy is that depending on which kind of hypnotherapy you use, it, it, you know, there are certain parts of hypnotherapy that are against Jewish law because according to Jewish law, oh. one needs to constantly be able to make a free choice. And if you give over your free choice to someone else through suggestion, that is considered against Jewish law because you have to always be as best you can hmm. in a state where you can make a free choice. So, um, and, and so there are some forms of hypnotherapy that still allow for free choice. I'd be curious about that. I, yeah. 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 The, the, there's a, one that I know of called a dream state hypnosis that doesn't allow the person to go into hypnosis uh, deep enough to not be able to make their own choices anymore. Okay. Thank you. But yes, there's a lot of correlation, and I appreciate that you bringing up hypnosis. Julianne. Uh, thank you. Uh, so the question that I've got written down, as opposed to the new one I've just come up from what you've just said, is um, when you were saying that there's the chemical reactions in the body versus whether it's a spiritual experience, uh, could it not be both? Because a chemical reaction sent from below as it were, allows the manifestation of a spiritual experience sent from above to be received or projected. I think it's a good point. I think it, what you're saying is a very good point. It, it could be both. And it could be also a matter of perspective. And at the end of the day, we always say this here, that life is fluid. It doesn't really matter how it's necessarily interpreted as long as it's experienced to the best that it can be experienced. But yes, I, I, I agree with you that it's very good chance that there, there are both elements there. Oh, thank you. And, and the new question, which I've just had from what you've just said to the previous question, is um, this, uh, what, you, what you were saying about uh, a state of hypnosis or hypnotherapy where you have no free choice, uh, is this to do with the uh, when it says that there were like uh, the dark side or aspects of uh, magic that God put into the world that were negative or dark? Because everything in the world had to be that's good has to have an equal and opposite counterpart that's evil so we can have free choice so when it says you shouldn't get involved in these things like the occult and the dark things is that part of that it is it is part of it it is part of it but free choice was given from the moment that adam and eve were created when god said do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil that was the beginning of free choice now the hope i mean you can say in a, in a perfect world, the hope was that the tree of knowledge would always exist theoretically and that true evil would be brought into the world because there would always be choice and they would always make the right choice. Though, giving your creations real free choice, you can't control whether or not they're going to make the right or wrong choice. 
And so that's the result. Our world, and I would say our world is continuously made up of lots of different free choices between good and evil and the results of those. And some, it's very easy for people to blame God for some of those choices that individuals make. But we do, as individuals, have free choice. And as a result of having free choice, this is the reality. We live in a world of both good and evil, and we could make both those choices. And what you see in front of you, on a micro and on a macro level, are a result of that. So we, we, we're very easy to, to be naysayers, and we're very easy to, to, to get upset and to, and to blame other people. But at the end of the day, we truly, truly live in a world of free choice, and we can see it today for sure. I don't know ever before. I, I only have a certain amount of years of life to say ever before, but we can see it more and more today than perhaps we have in the past. But, 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 but the hypno, thank you for clarifying that. The, the, the hypnotherapy is part of the um, magic or, or, or like spiritual powers. Certain parts, so certain, certain types and forms of hypnotherapy, yes. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yes. But, but in general, hypnotherapy could be a very good thing um, if used in the proper way. I don't want to, I don't want to, to take, to take anything away from that. Let's, uh, we're running quite late today. Uh, and I don't want to take away from the next class. So let's do uh, a quick, uh, uh, if we can, uh, just just a little golden nugget. Alessandra, do you want to start? Yes, because I want to tell you a joke uh, that I saw online the other day. So there's a narrator asking a man, probably, do you remember when God told Eve not to eat from the tree of knowledge? Right. So... It was God, right? Why would she listen to you? She didn't listen to God. Why would she listen to you? <laughs> Sorry, it's when you mentioned uh, God uh, telling uh, Adam and Eve okay. not to not to eat from the tree of knowledge that I remembered. I think it's my best joke for the next 20 years. <laughs> so my, my nugget for today is well, we, we know that there's always two sides to each story. And and uh, you telling us the other side of the story today reminded me to always remember there's another side to each story. Even fact, you know, there's always another side. So thank you for that. And I will pass it on to Fava. Thank you. Did you say Hava? I, I say Hava or Chava? Chava, yes, thank you. Still learning Chava, because PH. Yeah, well, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Still learning over here. Thank you. I have to learn my own name. Chava. <laughs> I mean, I don't have the Hesh and the He. Chochev doesn't work in my mouth. But it, there are different sounds, and the rabbi may be better at it than me. But that would definitely be Chava rather than Chava. Blem. Chava. Okay. <laughs> um, Thank you, Alessandra. Uh, I So my mom and I will both have a thing. My thing is my nugget today, it, which is so beautiful. And Alessandra, if it weren't for, for your sharing, I wouldn't have gotten it. And my nugget is that my mom told me that she had a very similar experience giving birth to me. Ah, I mean, hold on. I'm not much of a crier these days. Well, you guys, I all, you always get me. <laughs> um, 
so that's my nugget is is uh um being grateful for this group and how everybody shares because i don't think i would have ever heard that story had it not been for you sharing that so thank you um i'm very happy for both of you that you were able to share it and i'll shut up again <laughs> and then uh my mom has um, a nugget and she also has a question so maybe if we don't have time rabbi you could maybe whatsapp an answer or whatever you think is appropriate here you go so a nugget which has to do obviously with what celeste said i have two of them one was that i did i do remember that um when celeste when i brought her home and she was lying next to me that i didn't understand or have a name for the experience yet I do now, but it was an experience of a complete unity of the soul or oneness between two humans, which I don't think I, 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 I had an intellectual understanding that that might be able to happen, but not a, a profound, profound experience of this unity where two people are one person. And that, so that was, really amazing and my second nugget is that I'm very thrilled to be invited to this where human beings talk about things that are very important to me and things that I've always had questions about and always wanted to discuss because there aren't that many people that I can you know you can sit down and go deep and or be skeptical or be whatever you want to be. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. I think we might have a new a new joiner. We'll see if we I can get her up that early in the morning. We'll see. Uh, how about, um, who else do we have here? How about Fami? Uh, shalom everyone from, so me, I'm sorry, but I'm still uh, hung up with that uh, Esther story. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, I mean, uh, it's. I mean, I, I have a feeling that we are. I mean, that we. we, we I mean, uh, that we live like in some. So like, uh, it. Her story, like, it was already decreed that she would become a queen. It was already decreed that she would face Haman, and it must be like that because, like, it's God's ambassador on earth who have to rise up to the task. So. Which is it's a, that story, and, and and it goes also to living versus existing. She was living her full. She understood her purpose, which is like amazing, and she acted on it. I I, I mean that story, there, but I hope we'll do like a deep dive on it. I mean, uh, like uh, on Esther. I mean, like uh, the more I the the more I read it, the more uh, the more like I mean, uh, there are like multitude of of like facets or like many way to look at uh, several angles and all of them like they give you this wonderful like how to try to understand your struggle if somebody puts you somewhere that means you are needed for something it's it's, it's a but the beauty is like she she understood that and she acted on it even if like uh, she could have been killed like easily but but she 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 she, she, she chose to live not to exist basically uh, I mean, it's a wonderful story wonderful wonderful story uh, thank you so um uh, I, uh, i'm sorry i'm i'm still uh, like uh, <laughs> uh okay not uh, uh Cheryl, thank you 
Thanks, Fami. I'm here. I was busy writing too, doing a lot of listening today, more than the writing. And thank you all for your contributions. And Chavez, mom, welcome today. Um, I just wanted to add something on the hypnosis thing. I remember when I was 16, and 16-year-olds in the U.S. used to be a big deal. You know, a sweet 16 party and blah, blah, blah. I remember having a hypnosis or a hip hypnotist for my sweet 16 and that was my first intro into what they could do for comedy or entertainment and even at that point I couldn't buy into it later on in life I wanted to use a hypnotist more medically to lose weight and he helped a lot of my friends but that control part you're talking about God says we should always have free will. My little internal gut said, I can't let someone else control my mind but me, so I can't buy into it. So it was a total bust for the weight loss for me because I couldn't buy into that change of my brain to somebody else. And yet the friends who I recommended just... They went out and said, do not eat chocolate, it's bad for you, and do not eat this, it's bad. I just couldn't buy into that. So I was just thinking about that part. Anyway, I'm done. Um, Chaya, welcome. Thank you, Cheryl. So I just have a small golden nugget for today. I want to say thank you to everyone for sharing. Thank you, Rabbi Bernat, for holding space for this class and sharing um, all these uh, deep perspectives and the different points of views. And I look forward to next week's class. I'll pass this off to Ileana. Hi, I don't really have a particular nugget other than I just remain skeptical <laughs> about near-death experiences. So I'm still on that fence, but I... I appreciate everybody's sharing. Um, uh, I'm going to pass it to Fami. Uh, Fami did already. I think Kelsey is the only one who's left. I remember. Oh, Jill. Uh, Jill, right? Jill and Kelsey. Yeah. I often like Oh, and Julia. Thank you. Jill, why don't you start and then I'll move. go. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of is interesting going off of Alana because I was thinking about proof and what is that and how do we know any of it is true or real? And uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't think we know that, but I, I think just keeping open-minded, open-hearted for the possibility. That's like, that's all because otherwise I've made this decision that this, this isn't a thing. And I'm not sure where that leaves me. I don't have proof of that either. Um, so that's, I was just thinking about just, just keeping open and feeling how does it, how does it feel to me in a true deep way? So that's all for today. And Kelsey. Thank you, Jill. Um, I think today was reaffirming that 
objectivity is really important. Um, and then I really do appreciate this space. It's so unique and supportive of really a diverse group of people, but you know, we can't, or I can't go this deep with anyone else that I know. And so I just love coming to these classes. And also I just want to mention that this week has been one of those weeks that used to, before this, these classes, I probably would have been irritated and anxious and, you know, given into my animal soul more because something, my husband had an accident yesterday um, and he had to get stitches in his head. Um, but it was so strange because, well, it's not really strange, I guess, but I just thought, well, this too is for the good for whatever reason. And like, everything was fine. You know, it's just, I feel different in situations now. And I just thank you for that rabbi and teaching me that this too is for the good. It has just changed my entire life perspective. So anyway, Julian. Thank you, Kelsey. Um, I have three things to say. Firstly, does anyone know who was talking to whom in Alessandra's joke? Was it, was it Adam and Eve talking to the snake? Who gives you the right to speak? Or who gives you the right to tell us not to? Was, or, was that what? Eve talking to God, probably. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, and the second one is... Um, was uh uh funny was where you're when you were saying about Esther was that in relation to last week's class or was it a completely new thought that you had yeah it was we we had a, a nice deep dive into Esther last week and oh. I wanted to say to that that Rabbi Tzvi did give those classes on Esther and maybe I'll see if I can get Fami the recordings uh of those because uh that's such an it's such an important story and so many amazing outcomes. That would be wonderful. Oh, oh, thank you. And and the third thing was, the only thing that I can think of to do with the class itself was that I thought it was a good idea. I liked it that you're investigating, considering and responding to the counter arguments. So um, I appreciate that side of the uh, what we're doing. I, I think that makes it all the stronger and the more valued uh, as a result. Thank you. Thank you, Julian. And, I, and one of the reasons why I think it's so important, especially because we're exploring something that is really, really um, out there, or we call here the ethereal, it's important to be able to show all the different sides of it. Thank you all. I apologize to our Talmudists that we went uh, a little longer than usual today. Um, but uh, to be continued next week, and we'll finish the other half of this particular conversation next week as well. So with that, I wish you all a wonderful, uh, wonderful Shabbat. And of course, if you like to join us uh, uh, virtually, for those of you not in Montreal for the Bat Mitzvah, uh, we'd love for you to join us. Mazel tov. Looking forward to it. Yeah, mazel tov. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Well, mom, you're not off the hook. We're doing Talmud next, so you might, I don't know. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. 
I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness, and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode. <music> 